This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Eric Schwartzel on how China influences what gets made in Hollywood. So every movie that comes out in China is in some way tacitly endorsed by the government. Some, however, are outright produced by the government. And and they often directly mirror whatever the party's priority is at that moment. After China made it clear that they were not happy about being cast as the villain, MGM spent a million dollars hiring a visual effects firm to go in and replace every shot so that it was not a Chinese invasion, but a North Korean invasion. This is really screwed up. This is one country coming in and dictating what another country's art can say. Eric Schwartzel, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Uh, We're talking on the day that your new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, officially launches. So happy launch day. Thank you. I just just got my first photo of it in the wild. A friend saw it at the San Francisco airport. Um, which was more more of a, uh, a thrill than I thought it would be. I have to say, seeing it on yeah. an actual shelf. That's pretty good. Did he buy a copy? You know what? That's a great follow-up <laughs> question. <laughs> I should have asked. <laughs> Thanks for the photo. Now go buy it. Uh, that's exciting. How long have you been working on the book? I mean, how long is this day in coming? Well, I've been covering China and China's influence on Hollywood for, I'd say, probably about six years. Um, Mm -hmm. I started working on the book officially in late 2018 and reported it over 2019 and into late 2020. Okay, so that's a pretty fast clip to write a book. Yeah, some days it felt pretty fast, for sure. Yeah. Um, especially because I was I was try I was trying to go back and forth to China quite a bit, and then did did some other traveling as well. Thankfully, before COVID shut it down, and and so I spent most of um, the first six to eight months of 2020 in quarantine writing the book, and had done a lot of the reporting in the year or 14 months before that. Got it. Got it. Well, the book is it's it's a terrific read and it covers not just a lot of the the tensions, I think, between Hollywood and China and the government in China and Hollywood, obviously seeing China as not just a huge market, but as you tell the story, an indispensable one for many of the big studios at this point. But you really end up tracking so much of the of a, of a kind of a cultural rise in China and the way that they are grappling with their politics and the nature of their system and wanting to be sort of more open because they realize the power of movies to tell stories about a people and a culture, but also trying to continue to be the kind of restrictive totalitarian society that they are. It's a great story, and we're going to get into a lot of it in our conversation. But I wanted to start a little bit with you and your background. So you are uh, in the Los Angeles Bureau for the Wall Street Journal, uh, a paper near and dear to my heart because I worked in the D.C. Bureau as the Intel correspondent. We must have overlapped at some point. When did you get to the journal? I started in 2013. Okay, so we would definitely have overlapped for a bit. Um, but tell us how you came to both report on Hollywood and the film industry and then this just remarkable convergence between Hollywood and Beijing. Yeah, I've had, a, I've had I think, one of the uh, trajectories that remind us why journalism is such a cool career because I started my job, uh, my career in Pittsburgh. I was a reporter at the regional paper there, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And I covered fracking and gas drilling across Appalachia. So I spent time in rural West Virginia interviewing farmers. I drove to Ohio and interviewed Amish 
communities about gas drilling on their land, and then started talking to the Wall Street Journal and was hired to cover Hollywood in Los Angeles. So a bit of a, a change of pace and, and a change of topic. Um, and, and when I first started, I remember thinking that China, even back then in 2013, was something to look into. It wasn't until a few years after that, 2015, 2016, we started to see a ton of financing from China flood into Hollywood. And and there's a history of what they often affectionately refer to out here as dumb money coming into Hollywood. I mean, everyone, <laughs> everyone from, you know, Middle Eastern dictators to wealthy dentists in Ohio have come to Hollywood before and tried to make it as a producer. And I think there was a sense at first that this was China's turn to lose their shirts in, in the film industry. But then when it became clear that there was actually a political motivation behind it and that there was, in some cases, a government mandate for that financing to not only influence Hollywood, but also teach China how it was done, how to mount a soft power tool as powerful as Hollywood's, I realized there was a much bigger story here. And especially during the Trump administration, whenever the U.S.-China rivalry clearly came into focus as the narrative of the 21st century, it became clear that the movies had become this, over the past decade and a half, had become this unlikely proxy battleground. And it felt like a way to not only explore the real power of culture and soft power, but also to use the movies as an accessible way to explain this broader shift in the world order to people. You know, I think China remains for a lot of Americans a rather opaque topic. Um, I think it can seem mysterious and also frankly overwhelming to try and understand. And here was an opportunity to use things like Transformers and Tom Cruise to explain it all. And when you came to the beat, was it conceived, I mean, the, bit, the journal is a business paper, was your original writ to sort of cover the business of the movie industry? Yep. So I was covering and, and still do cover the studios, um, cover what's happening in the box office, cover, um, you know, obviously over the past year or so, it's been a lot about the shift towards streaming and how COVID has accelerated a lot of changes in the business model. And the international box office, so I started in 2013, the international box office was already a huge source of revenue for the studios. And over the past eight or nine years, it's only become more and more the case. And so these American studios, which I think throughout history have been seen as almost, I mean, in, in, in their earliest iteration, they were known as an adjunct of the State Department. You know, they were seen <laughs> as these kind of, these, these inherently American companies doing America's bidding around the world. In more recent years, they've become global companies I think, making and distributing global products. And so that's where we've started to see a little bit of a, of a rift forming between Hollywood and its own American government. Because I think for a lot of executives, they are often Americans working for American companies, but their priority has to be moviegoers everywhere and increasingly in China. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. We don't think necessarily of Hollywood as being, you know, a, a bastion of, uh, uh, you know, pro-government sympathies, right? I mean, it's we think that the idea of it is liberal Hollywood that comes out of a tradition of protest and making films that celebrate freedom of speech and, 
expression. And as you kind of lay out in this book, um, you know, so much of that gets compromised, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, it's a business. It's not merely an art. And the business is driving so many of the decisions today. Right. And and this started, you know, China started letting Hollywood movies in in 1994. The first one allowed in was The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. And Which I was, love that bit. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah. Such a fantastic uh, movie. A ve- in retrospect, an odd choice to get into China because yeah. it is about a man taking on the system and that narrative is a, is presents some problems for Hollywood uh, later in in the story, but um, nonetheless, 90, 1994, obviously, China's economy is opening up in all sorts of ways, and it is a few years before uh, the campaign really begins for China to join the WTO, and so the Hollywood movies flowing into China are really part of this broader opening up of the Chinese economy, but. For the next decade, even almost 15 years, the Chinese box office is an afterthought because despite the fact of, that they have a billion consumers, Chinese, Chinese uh, cities are still drastically underscreened. There aren't a lot of movie theaters. But then as China starts this massive internal migration from rural communities to the cities, theaters start growing at a clip. And it soon becomes very, very clear that China's box office is going to become number one in the world eventually, just at the same time that the U.S. box office is stagnating. So it doesn't exactly take a Harvard MBA to realize where the growth is. And so around 2009, 2010, studios, you know, when they're, when they're deciding what movies to make, they usually have what they call a green light meeting where they'll say, OK, you know, we need to make the case to make this movie. And so we're expecting 200 million dollars in the U.S. and 600 million overseas. Well, eventually, those meetings started to have conversations like this. We're expecting 200 million in the U.S., 600 million overseas, and 300 million specifically in China. China became such a big market that it almost it almost was sort of a third bucket to consider. And the political problem that comes with that is because is that to access that Chinese market, you have to have your movie approved by Chinese censors. So that means they're going to watch it and screen it and reject any film that has themes, topics, characterizations that they don't want their people to see. And as you tell, you know, in, in the book as well, I mean, this is really a highly scrutinized process, right? There is a board of people who sit down, they watch the films before anyone in China is allowed to see them. Um, You know, they might give notes or some of the, you know, now so much of the sort of the Chinese code, which is never really explicit, it sounds like, has kind of been internalized such that Hollywood knows how to make these movies that get past the censors. You write in the beginning of the book too about like the first kind of, a you know, after The Fugitive comes out, there's this first kind of major disaster that Hollywood studios have in the form of two movies, uh, uh, Kundun and Seven Years in Tibet. Do you want to tell the story of, uh, of trying to launch those movies in China and, and what happened and how that informs the story going forward? Sure. So this is 1997. So this is only three years after movies are getting into China at all. And Sony releases Seven Years in Tibet, a movie about a young Dalai Lama. And Disney releases Kundun, a movie about a young Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama at this moment is having a, he's really hot in Hollywood. He's like every, everyone in Hollywood is a Buddhist. All of a sudden he's, you know, he's a rock star. Um, he's featured in every magazine. He's, he's on, uh, on covers all over the place. 
And so these movies are put into production. And again, it's worth remembering that even though Hollywood was technically in China, no studio chief doing his or her job was paying attention to it because the grosses were still so low that you didn't really, it wasn't a good use of time. Nonetheless, when these movies about someone who is a de facto state enemy of China are put into production, the Chinese government makes it very clear that there will be problems for these companies if they release these films. And tellingly, they say, this is not about your movies being rejected from China. This is, this is not, it is not as though either film was expecting to make money in China to begin with. They say your companies overall will be banned from the market. So suddenly you have Sony worried about its electronics supply chain and its access to the consumer market for all of its electronics. Disney at the time is already in conversations about a theme park coming to the mainland. So you see how these movies that, I mean, maybe each of them cost, what, 30, 40 million dollars, become these contaminants that threaten much larger billion dollar investments for these companies. Now, the studios at this moment are in a tough spot because if they cancel the productions, they risk incurring the wrath of politicians and people in Hollywood because no one in the U.S. we've seen even recently likes it when a Western company bows to China. So they have to thread the needle. Sony starts a kind of behind the scenes lobbying effort with officials here in L.A., Disney decides to bury Kunden and release it on four screens on Christmas Day and then use that lousy performance to justify not releasing it further. Nonetheless, the, both companies are banned after the films come out, and it takes about a year for each of them to get back in. At, at one point, Michael Eisner, who was then the CEO of Disney, had to fly over to China and meet with officials and apologize. And there's this amazing transcript I reference of his meeting with this one official in which he says, the bad news is that we made the movie. The good news is that nobody saw it. And he essentially throws it under the bus. And nonetheless, you know, here we are, what is it now, 20, 25 years later, and China has a, or I'm sorry, Disney has a massive theme park Mm -hmm. in Shanghai and... It's movies until recently were regularly raking in hundreds of millions of dollars in box office grosses. But it was one of those cases where everyone absorbed the lesson that Sony and Disney had to very publicly learn. And so every studio that wants to maintain access to the China market learns through that example what topics to avoid. As I said, even if it's in films that are not planning to get into China at all. Yeah, and it's really clear, and as you tell the story, you know, Michael Eisner in particular, he really kind of has his eye on the long game, doesn't he? Because he really wants to get the Disney Channel in first, get people acclimated to Disney characters, then build a theme park, so he sees this. And the throwing uh, the, the movie under the bus, you know, is not without stakes either, because, I mean, Kundun, though practically no one saw it, it was directed by Martin Scorsese. Seven Years in Tibet was a major vehicle for Brad Pitt, where he was trying, I mean, I remember that film as sort of the moment where he was trying to transition into serious roles, and this was a big Mm -hmm. kind of sweeping epic of a movie. So these studios, in kind of 
harpooning their own work also ran the risk of pissing off some of the most important people in Hollywood who then could, you know, incur the wrath of others in Hollywood. So it's like these studios are caught between these two kind of awful positions with their own talent and this market that they can't turn away from. And that that seems to be that tension has been present all along. Oh, absolutely. And and you see it flare up even today when you have cases of actors like most recently, I think John Cena was the, the most recent example where he uh, gave an interview where he implied Taiwan was its own country and then had to shoot this hostage video where he apologized in, in Mandarin for, for saying so. And, and you're right. It seems like, it seems like the calculation remains that the domestic blowback will fade, but the Chinese response has to be prioritized and, and you do what you have to do to maintain that longer term access to the Chinese market. And, and I, and I have to say so far, it seems to have been the right call because even with other companies like, um, Nike or Intel or H&M, like we've seen other companies kind of caught in these crosshairs. And it seems like the domestic flare ups fade from memory faster than they do in China, which where we've seen, you know, years old comments unsurfaced and used against Western companies or Western celebrities or Western executives. Are U.S. government officials or have they historically leaned on Hollywood studios to to make different decisions? Or do they take the view that, look, these are independent companies. We don't we don't regulate, obviously, what they do, of course. Um, but, um, you know, how do they try and influence uh, the decisions that the studios are making with an eye towards what U.S. policy is towards China? Yeah, it's been it's been I, it, to, to my eye, it's been relatively hands off. I'm not sure what government officials think they can do. I mean, we saw this flare up, particularly in the Trump administration. We saw Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo both reference some high profile examples of Hollywood censoring itself for China. And that was frankly some of the most high profile criticism we'd seen of that kind of censorship. And in, in, in some cases, I mean, it was it was hilarious. I mean, there's this there's this example I explore in the book about this remake of Red Dawn um, that's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> was re, was remade in 2010, around two, around 2010. The original film had Russia as the enemy. Uh, this remake had China as this uh, this foreign country invading the U.S. and enforcing a response from vigilante teenagers. And after China made it clear that they were not happy about being cast as the villain, MGM spent a million dollars hiring a visual effects firm to go in and replace every shot so that it was not a Chinese invasion, but a North Korean invasion. So I just still can't get over like how surreal it must be to go to your job as kind of like a copy paste visual effects worker and then one day be drawn into this international incident. And, and it was news when it came out. In 2010, people knew that the Red Dawn switch had been made and that they had, to avoid Chinese, China's anger, made this enemy North Korean. But at the time, when I was looking at old footage, you really couldn't see much of a pushback. There really wasn't any um, consternation about it. It wasn't until 2018, 2019, when Mike Pence was vice president, that he was bringing up the Red Dawn example. 
years later. And, and I think it probably has a lot to do with where the two countries are, right? And, and in 2012, it was a different moment and there were different attitudes between the U.S. and China than there are today. But so far in the Biden administration, I think, first of all, it just seems like priorities are elsewhere. Um, I think it's it's probably really hard for the Biden administration or the studios to prioritize any kind of cooperation there right now. Um, studios are just trying to recover from COVID and 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 there's but there's also been a sense, especially as China has become so powerful economically, that studios have tried, I think, to duck and cover and to of keep this a little out of sight, out of mind. And and it's really a bit of a change from the role, as I said, Hollywood's traditionally played. When you think about like, when was the original Red Dawn made? At like the height of the Cold War. That's, I mean, it's what, there's a reason the Soviets were the bad guys there. And the same goes for World War II and, and even World War One, where we had Hollywood in some cases conscripted into the war effort um, and, and asked by the government to help either convince Americans to support the effort or valorize certain stories, you know, famously like Sergeant York was, um, I didn't know this, but I learned it when I was doing the book, but Sergeant York, um, the producers of that movie had to pay off uh, members of York's, uh, you know, brigade, his fellow servicemen, because there were so many, you know, half-truths and embellishments in that film. I love that you found that detail. That's great. It's 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 so interesting to me the way that these 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 things can get deployed, you know, for political purposes, and yet, you know, Hollywood just kind of keeps its head down and it keeps going. Um, you read a lot about too in the book about the 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 Chinese, the indigenous film industry in China, uh, and, and which of course is is takes is a, of a very different character and has a you know it's kind of joined at the hip with the government. Talk about main melody movies. Tell us what mm. those are and how that fits into. China's own history of filmmaking. Yeah, the, the first thing to understand is that in China, you know, every movie that is released in theaters has to be approved by authorities at the script stage. And there, so, so every movie that comes out in China is in some way tacitly endorsed by the government. Some, however, are outright produced by the government. And these are films often called you know, in China and outside China, propaganda films. Um, and, and they often directly mirror whatever the party's priority is at that moment. And main melody films are as an often softer version of that, where think of, think of it as China's version of Top Gun or The Right Stuff, movies that might present the, the Communist Party in a flattering light, movies that might be about victorious moments in Chinese history. I remember seeing, I remember seeing a movie you could probably categorize as main melody. And it was about uh, a mountain climbing expedition. I think it was like China's, the first Chinese mountain climbing expedition to summit Everest. And so it was like this kind of just a run of the mill inspirational feature about Chinese victory. Um, and so the main melody kind of slots into the overall party priority. And, and what's fascinating is you can see, according to what movies get put into production and what movies get released, 
where the party is on certain topics. So, you know, after whenever China started a lot of overseas investments in the Belt and Road Initiative, the it just so happened that there were a number of main melody films released about China teaming up with India on certain projects. I mean, it really is a mirror image. And and I had this experience when I was in Shanghai where I went to this museum. It's a propaganda museum. It's a, a very oddly in this like basement of a residential apartment building. But you can walk through. It's all laid out chronologically. And it's fascinating because you can walk through and you can sort of see world history through the party's eyes. And so, you know, in the 1960s, when the U.S. is seeing a lot of, I'd say, like tensions and, and consternation around race relations, you see posters manufactured by party officials spotlighting the the treatment of black America of black Americans in America as a way of kind of saying, you know, does that system look much better? And then later in the 80s and 90s, when when China's um, trying to bolster its technology industry, you suddenly have posters manufactured of Chinese children zooming through the stars in space shuttles, right? So, so there's always been a kind of a mirroring effect. And the main melody film is the sort of cinematic version of that. I don't know if it, if it counts as a main melody film, but but one recent Chinese film that probably a lot of, of our listeners have seen because it was a huge international blockbuster uh, is The Wandering Earth, which is mm. this story about, you know, it, it's a uh, I remember seeing the preview and thinking I was going to love it and seeing the movie and really not liking it. And I'll, I'll talk about why in a second. But it's the plot is basically that the me if I'm wrong, but the sun is going to collide with the earth. So they have to physically build engines that like knock the earth off its orbit or the sun's going to explode. So they have to move the earth out of its orbit and start shifting it to a different star in a different solar system. Um, and, you know, it's it, it, I don't know that it necessarily parrots, you know, Communist Party values per se, but like the Chinese characters are the heroes and they literally save the planet. And it was so striking to me because I watched this thinking like this is borrowing every bad U.S. action movie trope, right? It's just kind of all of them, only it's transposing them onto Chinese characters. Um, and, and I wonder, like, I mean, is, if a film like that, um, I don't know if it's something it's, like, it's necessarily approved by the government, but that's one that just struck me as, wow, this is really, you know, the Chinese saying we're going to make these huge epic, you know, epics that are normally reserved for, you know, American heroes and usually white male American heroes saving the world. And now it's our turn. And it's a, it's a spectacular film, even if the plot's a little clunky. And it was a giant hit. I think it made something like $700 million in, the, right. in China alone. And in, in many ways, it was a breakthrough for, for several reasons, one of which was it was widely considered China's first science fiction blockbuster. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing that was fascinating about it was it, it, I would say it was something of a main melody film. You know, I, I, a close read of that film is very fascinating because I think the only other um, kind of hero is an, a Russian who I think joins up with them at some point up in space. So kind of seeing that kind of bilateral alignment being reflected on screen as well. But then the other thing that a lot of people pointed out about that film is, is it became something like a pill in the peanut butter. Because it, you're right, it is about the, the, the glory of China and about putting China in the hero's role. Um, but it's in the guise of a fun science fiction movie. And, and I would argue 
it is more analogous to what America has done than the straightforward propaganda films of China are. You know, I think for a long time, the propag- the, what we would call the propaganda movies of China were really black and white and, and frankly, quite medicinal um, in their portrayal of events. And, and what we've seen recently is a more sophisticated approach, which is, you know, propaganda that doesn't feel like propaganda at all. And you can say like, well, they're just sort of copying the Hollywood playbook, but you can also say that they're adapting what has been a kind of state run, uh, playbook to the blockbuster era. Yeah. And clearly, and it seems like the numbers in the box office reflect which one is maybe the more effective and that it grossed, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars. So a lot of people saw that movie. Um, Going back into the earlier days of of Chinese filmmaking, um, tell the story of uh, the movie Farewell, My Concubine, which was, you know, a critical darling when it came out. Talk about the making of that movie because you tell the story in the book and it receives this rapturous attention from abroad and China rejects it and then subsequently has to kind of reluctantly embrace the film. So tell the story of Farewell, My Concubine. Yeah, Farewell, My Concubine, which I think of all the movies I watched reporting this book was my favorite, um, came out in the the early 1990s as part of what they called the fifth generation of Chinese filmmaking. It was this generation of filmmakers, many of whom had gone to Beijing Film Academy in the years immediately after the Cultural Revolution um, and started to make movies that were really unvarnished looks at Chinese history and Chinese life that were not shown in China and in some cases banned in China, but rapturously reviewed and celebrated on the world stage. So for a while, my concubine won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. It's the story, I mean, it's just got a million landmines for Chinese censors. It's about the, it's about the cultural revolution. It is about um, a Chinese opera singer who has a gay lover. I mean, there's just like, it's just like one thing after another that's not going to allow this movie to screen in China. Um, But then after it wins the Palme d'Or, the fact that it's not showing in its home country becomes quite glaring and pressure mounts from outside China to let this movie in. And what's fascinating is at the time, China was trying to bid for an Olympic Games. And as they have done for the past hundred years, the Olympics kind of shown a spotlight on this inconsistency and this issue with expression that China had then and has today. And an official actually said that because of that pressure and the Olympic spotlight, they ultimately let the movie into Chinese theaters with some significant cuts. And and we see that kind of balancing act quite a bit since then, where China will, will try to balance an acceptance or a standing on the world stage with its internal practices and policies. Now, what's interesting is more recently, I'd say, especially in the past year or two, it seems as though China has allowed its world, its global reputation to take a hit if it means keeping a hard line inside its borders. So I'm thinking uh, specifically of um, something like the Chloe Zhao case. Chloe Zhao is the director of Nomadland, 
that um, won, she won Best Director and Best Picture at the Oscars last year. And what was fascinating is she is the daughter of a Chinese industrialist who was largely educated in the West and then started making movies in Hollywood. And she was immediately just shot to the to the uh, top of the A-list because she was so well-received. And here she is, I think it was one of her second or third major film, and it's the front runner for Best Picture. At, at first, Chinese state media really celebrated her. They called her the pride of China. And it looked like here was an opportunity to see a Chinese-born director standing on the Oscar stage with a bunch of statues in her arms. But then there were these comments that she had made in 2012, so almost a decade earlier, about how growing up in China was growing up in a place where there were lies. And when these comments, which were made to a relatively obscure magazine, were unearthed and spread throughout China, Chloe Zhao essentially dropped off the face of the earth if you were using the Chinese internet. Her um, movies were scrubbed from the internet. References to her were scrubbed from the internet. Her ultimate victory at the Oscars was scrubbed from the internet. And it became worldwide news. And, and frankly, you know, there's a counterintuitive effect here, which is that more people read these comments she made in 2012 than, than would have otherwise if, if there hadn't been such a fuss. But it was an example where we saw Chinese leaders calculate that internal control and holding the line would, would always trump any stature on the world stage or approval from foreign governments. And that's been a shift that I think we've seen as, as Xi Jinping has consolidated power. That's been a shift more generally as well. It reminds me too, and it, this isn't an example, not an example of a filmmaker or an actor, but with the controversy around Peng Shui, the Chinese yes. tennis player, right? Who, you know, alleged that a Chinese party official had sexually assaulted her. And then she essentially like disappears and then kind of has to make a hostage video. Um, you know, and what I find so striking about that is, as you exactly point out, is that China clearly seems to have calculated that the international blowback and possibly even the condemnation uh, is, is something that they're willing to to weather in order to like basically make sure none of their people know what was said by these 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 Chinese people who are have more freedom than abroad. Um, at the same time, it, it, it's like um, it's not as though the world is necessarily standing up behind someone like Peng Shui, right? I mean, to this day, I think it's the the, the Women's International Tennis Association is the only major sports league that has come out to condemn China. You know, you don't see people threatening to pull sponsorship deals. You know, the International Olympic Committee uh, had met with Peng Shui and kind of issued a mealy mouth response, I thought. And in some ways, it's like China, I think, is almost proving its argument. They're saying, we'll take the hit from the PR because we know none of you are walking away from this market. And at the end of the day, they're not going to piss off China by saying, you know, like, you know, Nike is not going to say, well, because of the way you treated Peng Shui, we're not going to sell shoes in China anymore. Exactly. And I think, I would say, I think there is blowback and condemnation on a civilian level. It's just that the it doesn't seem to trickle up to any action on the part of companies or entities like the like the uh, IOC, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, and it's it's um. The Peng Shui case is is interesting because it, it does remind me of and of another way that Hollywood was a bit of an early student for a lot of these 
lessons. Um, there was a case uh, a couple years ago of an actress named Fan Bingbing who mm-hmm. similarly uh, disappeared into government custody after she was busted for tax evasion. Um, and this is the equivalent of Angelina Jolie or Jennifer Lawrence just disappearing off the face of the earth for several weeks. Um, and she had to, after she reemerged, she had to pay millions of dollars in back taxes and also then start, you know, it just so happened she started making more of those main melody films you mentioned too. So there was sort of a, she needed to sort of reaccrue some, some political currency afterwards. Um, but what was fascinating was that Fan Bingbing at the time of her disappearance was really trying to cross over and break out into American entertainment. And she was scheduled to star in this movie that came out in February called The 355, uh, starring Jessica Chastain and Penelope Cruz. Um, and and really, I mean, I think me and 14 other people ended up seeing this movie. It kind of <laughs> kind of came and went. But it was a fascinating story because it was announced, the movie was announced before Fan Bingbing was busted for tax evasion. And then it was filming while she had disappeared. So it really put the studio in a really tough spot. And what they ended up having to do is after she reemerged, they had to film her scene separately in front of a green screen and insert her into the film. And I went to see this movie because I... I knew this going into it. It's in the book. And I thought, well, I need to see what this this looks like. And I have to say, some scenes look a little bit more natural than others. Um, but the other thing that's that's sort of unintentionally hilarious is when you know that there is a green that, that she wasn't available to shoot these scenes, you realize all the body double work that was that went into it. I mean, it's like, it's like, why is this character only shown from the back? Like time and time and time again. <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of shots where it's just her, like just she's the only one at this desk and there's no one around her or no one talking to her. Um, and, but but I think a lot of audiences, you know, I have to imagine the four or five other people in the theater with me at, when I saw it didn't clock it. And and so he was just, um, you know, another example of a Chinese actress, as they have been for the past several years kind of finding a role in a Hollywood movie to try and win over appeal in the market. The irony is, of course, the irony is I don't think the 355 was released in China and I don't think it will be either. So it might have been all for naught. Yeah, and it's, I guess it's, I see posters up for it now and I've seen previews and, you know, it it, it looks pretty hammy and whatever. And I, I doubt that I'll see it, but it, it seems like one of those movies that's just going to come and go, which is surprising since it has these gigantic stars in it, right? Um, and, and, you know, in, and you write in the book too about, you know, the Chinese government's, you know, punishment of, of, of Fan Bingbing was in very many ways meant to send a message publicly. Uh, 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 and I wonder if um, in making an example of someone like her who was such a gigantic celebrity, I mean, possibly the most famous person in China, maybe next to like the president. Um, did that work? I mean, do you, did you sense that it has sent a message maybe to other business people or celebrities that don't even think of not paying your taxes. Don't try to pull a fast one on the government because, you know, we can ruin you. I think so. And, and it's something we've seen before. It's, there's a dialectic in China translates to kill the chicken to scare the monkeys, which is to essentially, if you can make a very high profile case out of something or someone, it teaches everyone a lesson and all the better, this doesn't apply to the Fan Bing Bing case, but all the better 
if it seems like a minor infraction, because then that lowers the bar for what others will possibly risk. You know, you think to yourself, well, if they made a big deal about that, like what won't they make a big deal out of, or, you know, have punitive measures for. And so I, I think, I think you're right. I mean, also, I mean, I guess in a more pragmatic way, it allowed the government to collect tons of money in back taxes from a lot of actors, directors, and film companies that had been operating with these, what they called yin-yang contracts, which um, report one salary to the government to pay taxes on while pocketing a different one. And and we saw across the industry, it was, it was seen as, and look, I mean, look, tax evasion is not a good thing, right? It's, 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 it's against the rules, but it was another step toward Xi Jinping kind of bringing his entertainment industry underfoot and saying to everyone, look, for the past decade, this has been fun. You know, we've had a great time building this massive entertainment industry, but this is still a country that expects art to serve the state and expect its um, artistic workers to serve the state. And so after that, not only did we have actresses like Fan Bingbing suddenly starring in more patriotic or state-sanctioned movies, but we even had studios announcing upcoming film slates where they said, we're going to make uh, coming-of-age dramas, you know, action comedies, and Belt and Road narratives. It would, it would be the equivalent of uh, Paramount or Universal saying this year we're going to make low budget horror, big budget superhero movies, and ten films about the Build Back Better program. <laughs> you know, it's like very, it's like that kind, of, and and it allows the studios to accrue some political capital and do have a little bit of a one for you, one for me model. And I wonder, I mean, how? It's a big question, but like, does it work? I mean, if, if a Paramount made 10 movies about Build Back Better in the United States, I would think even Joe Biden would call and say, please don't do that. Right. Because it's going to look just so overtly propagandistic. You know, people aren't going to believe it. Maybe some people will like it. But I mean, does the Chinese government think that by making these just overtly patriotic films, it is making people more patriotic? I mean, what, what is that? What is the investment and the payoff for them? It's hard to say. And, and I, cause I think you're right. I think it's an, I always try to remind people, like when I talk about this, that most moviegoers in China see what is happening and they see through it. And, and it's not uncommon to talk to a moviegoer and hear them say, well, that was pretty good for a propaganda movie. And, you know, or like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, there's a bunch of uh, war movies coming out because of the, uh, anniversary of the people's liberation army next week you know they they i mean this is not some this is not a, a movie going population that's just sort of blindly ingesting this um you know i guess the i guess the question i would raise is what does just sort of the saturation do though and what does the saturation do and also what does the awareness that there aren't other sanctioned narratives to explore do about what conversations you have, what ideas you have, um, you know, what you write, what you talk about with friends, that, that kind of thing too. Um, I think, but I think you're right. I, I mean, um, some of these movies sound deadly boring 
Um, and, and sometimes the government has to introduce certain controls to make them look more successful than they would be in an open market. Um, yet nonetheless, it's since the start of China's modern entertainment industry, this has been part of the system. It's, it's been a, you know, every, every, every studio that wants to go out there and make a bunch of money at the box office is going to be expected to do its part by making one, five, ten propaganda or main melody films a year. Hmm. You, you, you write about a number of important films and very famous films in the book that kind of become these pivot points in the story of the evolution of not just China's film industry, but also Hollywood's relationship with China. Uh, and one of them is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which, of course, the Ang Lee film. Uh, it's sort of a kind of a, a modern rendition of a classic kung fu movie, I guess. Um, I actually remember seeing that movie at a screening because I was working briefly as an editor for Movie Line magazine in the early 2000s, which is sadly no longer with us. Um, and going to that screening and not understanding exactly, other than the fact that Ang Lee had directed it, why there was so much buzz and hype about what basically seemed like a martial arts film. And this thing wasn't just like an ordinary screening. I mean, people got up and they said, this film is very special. We were really excited. Like you could tell they felt that mm -hmm. there was Oscar buzz around it. So, so talk about Crouching Tiger a bit. Like what China's hopes for that film were, what Hollywood's hopes were, and, and ultimately the reaction, which I think didn't quite go as people had hoped or planned. You know, in retrospect, it seems like more of a fluke than... I initially thought when I set out to to write about the Crouching Tiger history because I think it is still the highest grossing foreign film in America. Yeah, um, yeah that's interesting. You know, I think I think so. And and you know, America, you know, Squid Game aside, like has not been receptive to foreign entertainment over over time. Um, and and you're right; it was this kind of bigger budget. There was certainly a novelty to it. I mean, I think for a lot of American audiences, this was the first time they had seen that kind of Kung Fu story. And especially with the, the acrobatic choreography of, of running through the trees and, and so on. But what was fascinating to learn is that in China, it was old hat. And, and not only that, but Ang Lee had kind of experimented with the form in ways that they didn't audiences there didn't respond to. And so the movie, while a massive hit, and really, frankly, the film that catapulted Ang Lee's career to another echelon, um, did not do well in China at all. And and I guess it makes sense. You know, I think um, if if this is something that China has already absorbed and, and come to know very well, there's no reason for it to have been... Um, you know, a big hit there. I mean, but there's even things that like we would nuances we wouldn't even think about like Michelle Yeoh, who I think the film essentially introduced to most American mm -hmm. audiences was considered a little past her prime in China. And, and so there's, there's like, there's, there's cultural differences like that, that mean that the movie, which I think for a lot of Americans remains the most prominent Chinese or Taiwanese film that they know, um, you know, in China, it kind of came and went. And, and, and Ang Lee is not exactly, I would say, you know, be, you know he's, he's from Taiwan. He's not exactly what Beijing would hold up as like the model patriotic Chinese citizen. Was there concern about a film that was made by this 
person who, you know, was so identified with the West, but also was Taiwanese. Yeah, it's a bit, I mean, that's, gosh, yeah, I guess you're, I guess you're right. It's, it's a little bit of a, a you know, on the list of pros and cons for, for getting that kind of cultural sway and cultural influence, um, because the movie did very well at the Oscars, um, I believe it was submitted as the Taiwanese film. Yeah, that's in what you're right. Language. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and um, and what's interesting is that even since then, the Oscars, Chloe Zhao aside, have loomed very large in China's ambitions, and mm. and China has has really wanted since then for a Chinese movie, the Chinese submission for best foreign language film, to win the Oscar. It's still seen as even as we have conversations here in the U.S. about how the Oscars are increasingly irrelevant, I think in in for the, a lot of the rest of the world, it remains the ultimate imprimatur of credibility and making it in the in the entertainment business. And and it's interesting too because the Oscars are just so identified with American filmmaking, right? I mean, you know, it's basically it seems like you know for most years this has been changing more lately, especially with things like Parasite and other films. But basically, it's American films and then some British films, <laughs> right? And it's- Yeah, yeah, you're right. Although that, you're right, that is changing, it seems like, because when the with the membership of the Academy changing, a guy, a guy saw just this morning that Drive My Car from Japan was nominated for Best Picture, um, and the director was also nominated for Best Director. Um, so it does, it does seem like it is becoming a a little more global, but yeah, you're, but the point remains, yes, it, it still remains primarily a celebration of American filmmaking. Yeah. And it's just so interesting that that still is such a gold standard, you know, no pun intended. Um, another film that, that, that had a, a sort of unusual reaction to, and I love this story is Kung Fu Panda. Um, mm. Talk a little bit about the making of that film and, and then what the reaction was in China and particularly among Chinese officials when they saw that movie. Is it so fascinating? So um, I remember when Kung Fu Panda came out, um, the the animated movie about an overweight panda who learns <laughs> Kung Fu. And I, I spoke to animators and executives at DreamWorks Animation, which released the film, who told me about the story of it coming together, which was basically having a, a sort of general storytelling brainstorming session and having an idea to somehow combine pandas with Kung Fu. And that was how the idea was born. And it sounds like a classic, just weird Hollywood brainstorming session. Another weird Hollywood brainstorming session. There's some kind of alchemy there, right? And mm-hmm. and what's fascinating is this is 2006, 2007 or so. And still not a movie that, not an idea that they're generating and thinking they're going to get rich because of China. It's still a market too small to care about at that level. Um, nonetheless, the movie comes out. It's a big hit in China, despite it not having a mature market. And not only that, but it inspires this kind of existential soul searching on behalf of Chinese officials who look at it and say, okay, here's a movie about our national mascot learning our, you know, one of our most famous historical disciplines. Why weren't we the ones to think about this? Why, what is it about our creative class that wouldn't have thought of this. And and whenever Kung Fu Panda executives, when DreamWorks executives would go over, there would be all these questions that tried to kind of reverse engineer 
how they did it. You know, the, the panda is the adopted son of a goose. So they would ask Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, why did you make that decision? Was it a commentary? Like, were you commenting on uh, mixed race marriages? Like, what what was the message in that? And and he would try to have to try to explain, you know, it was just a kind of a quirky decision, a quirky detail we we came up with. You know, not not every movie has to have like has to be sort of so approved and and um, and wrapped in in messaging. And and after that, Chinese officials drafted legislation to try and support their animation industry and say, like, this is something we want to work on. We want to develop our own animation industry so that we don't have to look to the West for these kinds of stories anymore. And and since then, there has been a really robust Chinese animation industry built over the past decade or so. Lots of money made. And, and often about... Um, Chinese uh, folklore, stories of Chinese folklore um, have done really well in the animated space. Um, however, they have yet to do what Kung Fu Panda did, which is kind of give the world a character. You know, Poe from Kung Fu Panda is recognized around the world far more readily than any of these Chinese animated blockbuster characters. I, and I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book because it, it gets to this idea that it seems to me what is maybe frustrating the creative ambitions of the government of China is that it's trying to almost create art by committee. And mm. you know, everything needs to be freighted and everything needs to be with meaning and everything kind of needs to be <clears throat> managed. And they don't seem necessarily willing to just let the, the creative chaos take over. Right. You know, Katzenberg basically saying, like, it's just a duck. I mean, like mm-hmm. with this, this is like people got in a room and we throw stuff around and this is how it works. And we trust artists to come up with ideas. Some fail, some succeed. Um, but they're sort of like that, that the idea that they're trying to reverse engineer this thing as if the system can plan for it and figure it out seemed to me to be just so illustrative of maybe the disconnect that China and Hollywood have or that Chinese officials aren't quite understanding about like that kind of alchemy or that magic that you need which means to create great films which often means hands off and and letting it go and letting them make mistakes and letting them make things that might be offensive or dangerous Uh, and that just seems so antithetical to the way that they've tried to make film and let film into the country yeah it's that is the that is the core tension and i think it's one that they uh the chinese filmmakers are figuring out um, and, you know, I have this example later in the book that, that really rang this home for me, which is that I went to the set of a movie that's still not out yet, actually. It's, I think it's been delayed a couple times, but it's essentially a massive three-part, big-budget Chinese folklore adaptation that I think they're trying to cast as China's Lord of the Rings. That kind of, and it's a, it's an adaptation of these, these Chinese folklore stories that everyone in China knows, you know? And, and so I went to the set and I went in the middle, and they're in the middle of this rural farming community. They had built this built to scale um, Chinese fortress where they um, shot a bunch of scenes of, of battles and, and so on. But I mean, it really was as big as a fortress would have been in the 14th century. I mean, just this massive, set and i was talking to workers uh later in the trip who had who had worked on the film and they said 
you know, it was really frustrating because we were shooting all these big battle scenes, but we were told to be careful and not nick the wood or damage anything because there are already plans to turn that set into a tourist attraction. Um, before the movie has even come out and before they even know if it has any appeal. Um, there's all, and there's already then um, plans to build Chinese uh, apartment towers and a shopping plaza. And this whole sort of development is planned not far from this set that wants to be kind of like the, um, you know, the Field of Dreams uh, baseball field in uh in iowa that people go to because they love the film so much and i thought well isn't that so fascinating like that but even before the movie comes out there's this hope that and actually frankly this sort of plan to make this to sort of manufacture appeal to to this place to the point that the original purpose was undermined because they didn't want to nick the wood or damage it for its future use one of the things that keep kept striking me in, in, in reading your book is, and, and tell me if you think this, if, if this is if you agree or not, but it seemed that so much of what was at the heart of what Chinese officials were doing and their and their kind of need to have this very tight control over over the messages of films, the content of films, what people are allowed to see, um, which is you know a kind of classic authoritarian or even totalitarian tendency it seemed like there was just like a lot of fear and lack of confidence, even in their own message sometimes, that they just had to have this, so much control over it and don't let people see alternate messages. Like this kind of fear and lack of confidence seems to just sort of permeate so much of the decision-making. And I, I wonder if it comes across that way to you as well. I think it's um, definitely there's there's caution. And and the way I think about it is I think, I think about who's in the system, right? And because I think one thing I realized when I was reporting, whether in Hollywood or in China, is that oftentimes these, these macro narratives are set by people making very personal day-to-day decisions. And so, for instance, I, I mean, I'll get, I'll, get to, I'll get to the China part, but I, I, the first thing that comes to mind is when I spoke to one of the writers of this Red Dawn remake, mm-hmm. and when he got word that they were changing his script so that it was not a Chinese invasion, but a North Korean invasion... He was really upset. He was like, this makes no freaking sense. There's no way that anyone's going to buy this as a premise for a movie. But also he thought, you know, this is really screwed up. This is one country coming in and dictating what another country's art can say. And he thought to himself, should I speak up? Should I say I refuse to help? I refuse to work on this. And then he thought to himself, you know, well, he needs to get paid when the movie comes out, he needs to get paid from royalties when the movie comes out on DVD. He doesn't want to get a reputation for being a difficult writer because then no one else will hire him. And so he went in and did the work. And, and so here's a guy who's, you know, thinking about not just a paycheck, but sort of, you know, taking care of his wife and kids and balancing that against these larger, you know, more philosophical concerns. And, and I think about that when it comes to, the, the fear and caution you referenced in China, which is that oftentimes the bureaucrats who are making decisions about what movies to let in also want to keep their jobs. And, 
And if you know, I mean, it doesn't take a um, you know political scientist to know that there are tensions between the U.S. and China right now. You know, are you really going to stick your neck out and say, yeah, we should let, you know, this Marvel movie in, even though it was directed by Chloe Zhao, who we know we have issues with? You know, I mean, so I think that that I think that's one layer there is that there's like often just personal stakes involved. But to your point about fear and caution, I mean, this is I think about it a lot like how in the U.S. we have some Democrats who are farther to the left than others and some Republicans who are farther to the right than others. We've we've seen throughout Chinese history that each time the um, some kind of Western influence comes in, there are pockets of the party that spring up and say, you know, should we be allowing this? Do we want our children watching Disney movies? Um, And then this really flared up during the Trump administration with what they called wolf warrior diplomacy, where you had these really aggressive, strident Chinese diplomats saying, you know, going after critics large and small of anything having to do with China. And then within China, you had people saying, whoa, 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 let's tap the brakes. Like, you know, we, we, we're, this is going to do more harm than good if we're seen as these bullies on the world stage. So I think there is more of an internal balancing act than sometimes we can see as just sort of like Western news consumers. Um, but I think, I think your larger point is right. You know, there's, I think it's a little reductive, and sometimes I hear this in Hollywood when people say, you know, oh, well, they're worried because if, if their people see China, if their people see American movies, they'll revolt. There will be a new, you know, Arab Spring or something. It's like, well, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's, it, it seems like even, even the risk of that is informing a lot of decisions being made. And, and you know, and after Hollywood has spent now two plus decades learning how to operate in China, learning what will get past the censors, what will not, learning how to make crazy fixes, like in the case of Red Dawn or, or the 355, if they need to, to work with that. Now it's at a moment, too, where maybe less so in the Biden administration, but certainly in the Trump administration, where companies that are doing business in China risk getting on the, the wrong side of the U.S. government or getting in the middle of a spat. So, I mean, do you think going forward, is, I mean, I, I, I would suppose it's not enough to make Hollywood studios say like, well, we can't do business in China anymore. But like what position do they find themselves in now where kind of bowing to Chinese pressure, particularly around things like censorship or whatever, can can be seen as sort of anti-American. And that if an American politician wants to go after a studio for that, they have many playbooks for doing it now. Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I think in some corners of Hollywood, that's the real fear is that we've seen some, you know, especially whenever the NBA flare up happened, when a general manager tweeted support for Hong Kong, and then suddenly the entire National Basketball Association was was effectively banned in the country. We started to see, frankly, bipartisan criticism of that kind of behavior and what's happening in Hollywood. I mean, I've, I've always said it's one of the few issues that AOC and Ted Cruz have agreed on in their careers in Congress. And I think we should, I mean, if tensions continue to rise between the U.S. and China, and the Olympics is a great example of this, where it's like you have to, you have to discuss the human rights abuses or the free expression issues 
when you're talking about anything having to do with China today, it feels like it could become more and more of an issue for politicians to to grab onto. And and I think so far it's really been pretty centered in the left. I'm sorry, in the right. I mean, the, the Republicans have taken this issue farther than Democrats. But I don't think it's necessarily just a, a right wing red meat issue. I think that there's I, I think, as you said, I don't know if anyone necessarily wants Hollywood to become this factory for patriotic American movies. But these high profile examples of censoring films for China or not commenting on certain human rights abuses when asked about it, like the executives are being put more and more in an oppositional stance to their mm-hmm. own government. So let's that, that's a good segue to talk about the Olympics, which is obviously a huge spectacle playing out right now. Uh, it's in Beijing. I think this makes I think this makes Beijing the only country to host a winter and a summer games or summer and a winter games. That's um, interesting. So I didn't know this before I, I did some reporting on it, but I had no idea. Like you can't you can't like give the Winter Olympics away anymore. I didn't <laughs> know this, but no one no one wants to host no them. Wants it. it was between Beijing and Kazakhstan. Oh jeez. <laughs> I had no idea. <clears throat> I guess it's not a contest, really. Uh, you know, this is a moment where um, I think even so you've seen this some of the opening ceremony coverage where it seems like the press and maybe it's more the Western press is really leaning into the abuse uh, uh, of the Uyghurs, the, the fact that, that, you know, you have a million plus people in prison camps, what, what some governments have called a cultural genocide. Um, talk about your, your, your sense of how this narrative is now playing out, because China and Xi Jinping have this moment where they want to celebrate China. And, uh, you know, the 2008 Olympics, which you write about the Summer Games, was kind of its grand world coming out. This in 2020, uh, 2021, obviously marred by COVID here, but meant to be kind of another moment of asserting Chinese dominance on the world stage. And it seems like so much of what people are talking about are the abuse by China of a religious minority. So, so what are your thoughts on what you're seeing in the Olympics right now? Yeah, it seems like the fact that it is such a prominent part of the conversation, I think, speaks to the efforts on the part of activists and critics of China to make it a part of the conversation when the Olympics finally did start. And you're right. I mean, there's such interesting bookends because China really is on the defensive here this time around, at least from at least from the American vantage point. Right. I don't know how it's playing out in other in other parts of the world, um, you know, I think I think that it's it it seems like the most high profile example we have yet of those conversations existing side by side, sort of observing China's rise, but also observing issues that critics have within China's borders. But it also just has expanded the cast of companies, people, athletes who are caught in the middle. I mean, the the Olympic sponsors like Coca-Cola or Airbnb now, I mean, they're finding themselves having to increasingly answer these questions as to why they are supporting a games being held in a country, as you said, with with these Uyghur camps. And and so I don't know. I don't know where this ends, though, because political pushback feels like it could be a lot of noise, but I'm not sure what sort of regulation or legislation could even be passed. I mean, Ted Cruz, I mean, I, I, I can speak to Hollywood. I know Ted Cruz had introduced this idea of not allowing um, 
government support for movies that are released in China or that work with studios that do work in China. I think like he was thinking more like whenever the military helps with like the Top Gun reboot and so on, that if, if you have some kind of American involvement or aid, you shouldn't be also working with, with China or maintaining access to that market. Um, that doesn't really work in practice too well. You know, that does, there's not really very far to go there. So I want, I wonder if it gains any traction with consumers because it feels like that is where there might be, might be more power. Um, but like I said, so far, it seems like a lot of these examples and cases flare up and then kind of fade from memory relatively fast. And I would think too, from the company's standpoint, if it was a smaller market that they were talking about, if it was, if it was a country with not a billion people in it, um, where they could maybe uh, uh, afford to step back or say, okay, well, we won't do business there. I mean, it, it's, this is not the sort of boycott that attended um, South Africa or apartheid era South Africa, uh, where the world could kind of you know join ranks and, and, and turn against them. This is China. It's the, it's the second largest economy in the world. And at the end of the day, I mean, as so much of your book is about, I mean, at the end of the day, the dollar is what trumps. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think a lot of executives would say, look, I've got a fiduciary duty. Like, I hear you, but I also have a duty to my shareholders to maximize profits. And taking a stand that deprives me access to 1.4 billion consumers, I think they also would fairly say, like, do those 1.4 billion people have a say in this too? Right? You know? Um, uh is it is it that terrible to entertain 1.4 billion people or sell them tennis shoes they like and things like that? You know, so it, it gets really it gets really complicated. But what I find fascinating is just this in every sector from Hollywood to cars to fashion, this collision between short term thinking about winning the quarter or hitting, you know, quarterly performance marks with a country that just very casually talks about 5,000 years of history. That seems to be the core issue here is that Chinese authorities have a much longer game and a much longer term view of what is happening here than these executives who are kind of forced to worry about the next three months. Well, in the few minutes we have left, I would be remiss if I did not get your quick hot take on the Oscar nominations. Which, oh, thank you. I was up. I was up super early. So I, I actually watched them live. You know, the I have to say um, what I find most fascinating is it does seem like this year Netflix just might get the best picture Oscar that it has desperately wanted um, with power of the with, dog with the power of the dog. It looks like it looks like that has got some pretty broad support. Um, they were more I have to say. Credit where it's due. They were more interesting nominations than I thought they were going to be this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, there were mm-hmm. there were more surprises than I uh, than I thought there would be. I think the challenge is going to be, um, you know, as it has been in the past several years, just sort of generating interest. And it's not really the Academy's fault. I think it's more just there's just just been the shift in the market and mm. um, the era when a lot of people went to see a movie just because it was nominated for an Oscar just isn't the case anymore. And, and I think, you know, I would meet like, it was, it was not um, an apocryphal thing 
that there were members of the Academy who would refuse to vote for any movie that did not have a theatrical release. Like I mm. would meet that. I would meet them and they would say, I am never voting for a Netflix movie as long as I live. I think that COVID probably wore a lot of those arguments down. And, and now that there are so many movies that are going straight to streaming and so many theatrical releases this year, like West Side Story and King Richard that are just flat out bombing um, it feels like the time would be right for a streaming first movie to take the top prize. Has, has the Academy changed the rules that you no longer have to at least show like in one theater in New York and LA to qualify or? I'm not sure. Cause I think they had to change that for COVID to begin with. And I'm yeah. not sure what they did for, I'm not, I'm not sure what they did for this year, but, um, I can't think off the top of my head, but I know, I mean, there's at least a handful of movies in best picture that were all straight, you know, first streaming first films. Yeah, no. And it, it's a, just for the benefit of the audience. They may not have heard yet. You've got Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, uh, Nightmare Alley, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog and West Side Story. Um, I think I'm with you. I'm thinking I'm thinking Power of the Dog is probably I mean, it's it got the most nominations. That seems like that might be the leader for uh, for best picture, which also interesting in that it's a it's a very challenging, different film. I mean, Jane Campion is not an easy director, uh, and it's not an easy film, and it's subtle, and there are things of it that you can that you can miss. I'm not going to spoil anything, but like a friend of mine actually pointed out something to me about the the, the character of the son that I missed on the first viewing that I'm going to have to know go now go back and watch. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a crowd pleaser of a film, but. This may be the year for an artistic film and a streamer to uh, to win, right? I think so. It feels it feels like it could have an, a nomad land trajectory where it just kind of steadily yeah. collects critics' prizes and kind of becomes a bit of a fait accompli. I think there was some hope that a big theatrical movie like West Side Story could do it and give Hollywood a bit of a symbolic victory and you know sort of say the big screen is back. But that movie did so poorly at the box office that even if, even though it was critically received, I think it took a lot of wind out of its sails. Interesting. Interesting. It's also interesting to me that Denzel Washington gets nominated for best actor for Macbeth, but Francis McDormand does not get nominated for best actress as Lady Macbeth. I think best actress was quite crowded this year though. Yeah. You've got uh, Jessica Chastain for the eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for the lost daughter, Penelope Cruz for not the three, five, five for some <laughs> others. Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. I mean, there's a lot of big competition there, isn't it? That's some big, that's some big competition for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, and if I, I, I loved Belfast so far that I have to say that was my personal favorite. So I'm going to pull for Belfast uh, regardless. All right. Very last question for you, Eric. It is the tradition on chatter that I reach into the chatter box. Oh, and I, okay. And I ask you a at random a previously written question. Ooh, uh, I'm excited. That you then get to answer. Okay, I'm gonna circle this up a little bit. If you were here in person, you would pick it yourself. Uh, but um, ah, this is a good one, and you can take this in your field of journalism or filmmaking if you want to. Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Who is an underappreciated? You know, journalist, filmmaker, somebody like it's not getting the cred that they deserve. Oh, I think that's a great, that is such a great question. I'm actually looking at my bookshelf um, because I'm thinking quite a bit about 
like the books I was reading while I was writing this one. And because I tried very hard to like avoid other business books and instead um, just sort of throw a bunch of books in the pot and, and sort of see what the, what the connections were. Um, and so like, I read a lot of Joan Didion. She's very appreciated. She does not need my, um, my endorsement. Um, but one, one book that I actually found um, super helpful was by um, a guy who's at the Washington Post. His name's Hank Stuver. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, last name is S-T-U-E-V-E-R. He wrote a yep. series of essays called um, Off Ramp several years ago. Do you know this book? I don't know the book. I know Hank. Yeah. 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 So, so I, um, I became a giant fan of this book. It's a series of cultural essays, really super smart. Um, I don't even remember how it kind of came across my radar. Um, but I became a big fan of that book and it was really helpful when I was writing this one because it's, it's a mix of, it's a mix of styles that you don't see very often where it's sort of this like cultural analysis, first person thought, um, and reporting, like it kind of throws all of it in there. And, and that was a really helpful model for me, um, when I was working on this book. So that's, that would be my, that would be my endorsement. Good. Great recommendation. Uh, and, and as a Washington post partisan, well, well, thank you for that too. Oh, right. Of course. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Totally. Uh, well, Eric Schwartzel, the book is red carpet, Hollywood, China, and the global battle for cultural supremacy. Uh, it's a, it's a great piece of history. It's a great piece of writing. It is smart. It is also dishy. It's got great narrative. So people should check it out. Uh, congratulations. And thanks for coming on to talk to us. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. 